Welcome to Child Life 101 for emergency departments and emergency care providers using non-pharmacologic methods to relieve and manage pain and anxiety. Um, and today we have three speakers, Dr. Phyllis Hendry, uh, Danielle Eves Hernandez, and Colleen Kalinich. Um, so please uh, join me in welcoming them today. So thank you. Good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, great. Uh, so my name is Phyllis Hendry. I'm a pediatric emergency physician, and uh, I'm happy to say I'm on Florida time uh, <laughs> and not uh, Las Vegas time, so it's not um, quite as late as it's early as it seems. But thank you all for being here so early and for one of the first uh, lectures of Pain Week. So we're going to be telling you a little bit about a course we've put together called Child Life 101 for Emergency Care Providers in a Distraction Toolbox. And we have the first prototype of our toolbox here that we'll, we'll show you. This is a work in progress, so you're the, the first to officially hear about it. A lot of the work we're doing here is part of something called the Pain Assessment and Management Initiative. It's nothing commercial. It's a, it's a private grant. We have a patient safety grant. Uh, there's a website. If you want information at the end of the presentation, you'll have the website. And um, it has all this material and non-farm. And if you want to follow the progress of this project, you can go to our, to our website. Um, so I know this is the first time Pain Week has had an emergency department track. And I don't know how familiar most of you are with emergency departments or with working with paramedics or EMS. Um, but we see a lot of pain. <laughs> so... Um, but we're not very good at, we don't have a lot of education, how to treat pain. Uh, typically, we've thought about non-pharmacologic methods in children, but it's also very important in adults. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Danielle will tell you about some t techniques that child life therapists and specialists use, but most emergency departments don't have the luxury of having a child life specialist. So from here on out, when we say ED, we're talking about emergency department. When we say EMS, you know, we're talking about paramedics, EMTs that bring us in patients. So these are objectives today. Again, we'll talk about some non-pharmacologic techniques um, you can use in pain management, how to develop a distraction toolbox, and talk about community resources and some things we've learned and how to put this project together. So again, I know you're all from different backgrounds, so I want to just give you a little snapshot of some of the things that we're dealing with now in the emergency department and EMS. So I practice clinically peds emergency medicine, but I'm over research for a department of emergency medicine. You know, we see about 90,000 patients a year, about 25,000 of those are children, and we also have a trauma center. So every day when we come into work, it's a new setting. I don't come in and have the same nurse and the same technician and the same clerk every day. So it's a very chaotic setting. We're kind of thrown together very quickly. We don't know the patients. Some of them are critical. Some of them are not. So we kind of have to make this quick decision about what we're doing. Uh, we also see tons of different types of diseases. We see everything from a premature baby to an adult. And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today you can use in all types of ages. We also see a very challenging population, many of them do have mental illness, they do have substance abuse, they have a lot of comorbidities. Many of them have had very bad medical experiences before and, and bad emergency department experiences. So it's not always the best setting for trying to determine, you know, a psychological method of pain management. And um, especially those that see most of the adults, it's pretty easy to get pretty burned out and pretty biased and no, I'm not going to try any of this touchy-feely stuff. So we're trying to show them that there is a science behind non-pharmacologic methods and, um, and to the specialty of child life. 
So again, we, there's estimates of up to 78% of all the patients we see have some type of, of pain complaint. It's a very common reason for 911 calls. And there's literature going back 30 years. I see, I finished my fellowship in 1991, and every year there's a new study that comes out with how poorly we treat pain, especially in children, uh, African-Americans, uh, women, and, and patients with other medical problems. So if you work in a tertiary hospital or a children's hospital, you may have other resources that can help you with some of these techniques, like social workers or child life therapists or volunteers. Uh, my emergency department, we have a part-time child life therapist, but 80% of children are seen in general emergency departments, so they're not seen anywhere where they're going to have all of these resources. And we also have very limited education. One of my favorite quotes is this one, that veterinary schools require at least five times more education on how to handle pain in medical schools. And I would have to say that's very true. It's the same for nursing. It's the same for paramedics. I mean, paramedics barely get any education on pediatrics, much less on pain management. Everyone's trying to improve that with the new focus on pain management, but, but we're not there yet. So just some of the basic tenets of what's going on now with ED pain management. Um, again, when I started this whole pain assessment and management initiative project, I had no idea. I wrote the proposal for it like three years ago. and had no idea that you know, pain would become the most controversial subject on the planet you know, or that the opioid addiction crisis would happen. So um, everything, there's a whole new focus now in emergency departments on pain management and on anything we can do to help the patient deal with pain besides an opioid, and, and some of that is non-pharmacologic management. Uh, pain and anxiety, as you know, or you probably wouldn't be at this meeting, are very difficult to separate out. So you take a child or an adult, and they're in a car accident unexpectedly. They're on their way to school, work. Suddenly they're in a crash. Then they're, you know, got a collar on their neck. They're slapped down and, you know, on, a, on a backboard, taking an ambulance to a place they don't know with no family around. There's a lot of anxiety going on. So even if they don't have something painful going on, anxiety plays into that. And what we're trying to propose to our colleagues is that, you know, we need to treat pain like any other abnormal vital sign and do something about it. And to stress that what we do in that first initial ED visit or that first initial EMS visit, you know, will affect that patient or that child for the rest of their life. So again, why, just to summarize why there's this new emphasis on non-pharmacologic methods. One, you know, better patient response and satisfaction. You can often decrease the use of opioids or any medication, and it decreases time for adverse events, especially uh, for procedures and adverse events, especially in pediatric patients. So if we have to do something called a procedural sedation, where we... Um, or, you know, or giving, uh, you know, like ketamine or some other drug. There's all these joint commission rules you have to follow. And the patient, it makes them, they're usually there an hour and a half. Or if you use non-pharmacologic methods and you don't have to give some of those medications, you can have them in and out pretty fast. And we are in, uh, you know, under tremendous pressure to decrease waiting times in emergency departments. Uh, emergency care, we've focused a lot of this project, this emergency, um, I mean, Child Life 101 for emergency care providers on children. Everyone loves kids. Everybody loves to help a sick kid. Um, so we think if we target it towards children, they learn these techniques, you know, then they can apply some of this to adult patients as well. And actually, there's uh, several national 
pediatric emergency courses for paramedics by American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of Emergency Physicians, National Association of EMTs, and the PEP course actually recommends a distraction toolbox. But we looked around and we couldn't find any. Australia um, was the only place we found. I don't know if any of you are from Australia or Canada, but you guys do a far better job than we do in the U.S. of, of, of treating pain and, and of do of, um, performing non-pharmacologic methods. So just briefly a little bit about, about child life. You know, what is child life? Uh, I have a background in pediatric hospice and palliative care. I ran a peds hospice program for a few years, and that's how I met Danielle, who's a ch uh, child life specialist. But, you know, I talked to our emergency medicine residents and some of our emergency physicians, and they're like, what is child life? So won't go into the whole thing. There's some references here that will tell you a little more about child life if, you, if you're not familiar with it. But they provide developmental, educational, and therapeutic interventions. And often with the work, the preparation that child life performs, you know, a little distraction, we can maybe add a topical or local medication, and the child can be still for an ED procedure with minimal medications or restraint. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a policy on, on the need for child life therapists. Again, most EDs cannot provide this. If they do, you know, maybe it's for eight hours a day, and we are a 24-7, you know, 365-day-a-year operation, and we can't really predict when our patients are coming in. So our problem solution was to develop this Child Life 101 for emergency care providers and a distraction toolbox. So these are, again, this is a work in progress, so we'd love to have your feedback on things that need to be included. What we're envisioning when we do the rollout is we'll probably do, you know, a half-day course in Florida, but then we'll also have everything online if someone wants to develop their own course, and you could tone it down to a one-hour course, a half-day course with some simulation scenarios. But these are the basic components. So there's a stepwise approach to pain that I developed through part of our, our PAMI grant um, because I found that... Um, most emergency physicians were very confused about what they were trying to accomplish with some of the medications, so we'll talk about the stepwise approach. Behavioral responses to pain by developmental stage. Conversation and acknowledgement of pain. How to use therapeutic language. Psychological and cognitive behavioral interventions. Physical and sensory interventions. Um, what to have in your distraction kit and toolbox and then case scenarios, and then we're buying a GoPro and the little spy glasses where you can record, and we're hoping to get some, um, some good recordings. Every day, every time I work a shift, I'll have these great cases and go, oh, I wish I would have recorded this. So how do you determine when to use non-pharmacologic pain management? So first, we have a stepwise approach. We have to determine, you know, are we dealing with acute or chronic pain, uh, pain or anxiety, and what is the patient's, you know, age or past experiences? So this is the stepwise approach, and we'll briefly go through each of these steps. And this can be adapted if you're using medications, not medications, you know, pediatrics, adult, EMS, or hospital. So the first is a situation checkpoint. You know, what are you trying to do? Are you just trying, does a child need a CAT scan and they need to be still? Or are you trying to do, you know, a very uh, painful procedure? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? Second and very important for what we're talking about today is to perform a developmental and cognitive uh, kind of checkpoint. So what's their developmental stage? There's, you know, all types of tables you can look at by age and what the child's response is. Um, do they have any special health care needs? We are seeing a ton of children with autism 
and ADHD in the emergency department. And our adult ED wants us, you know, first they want us to see up to 20, now 21, you know, and it's very common for us to get a call where you see this, you know, 25-year-old with autism or some type of developmental delay because you deal with it better than we do. And then you have to remember that kids and teens, now they don't always follow the charts. It's just a, a goal. So you have to do your own assessment. <clears throat> this is just an example of a table, and we've got the reference for this in, in our, in our um, references and resources. So you need to look you know, at the age group. Obviously, a toddler is going to respond very differently than an adolescent. And this is just a blow-up of one of the ages. So... Um, for example, the one to three-year-old, you're looking at their understanding of pain and their behavioral responses. Then there's a family dynamic checkpoint, and this can really make things very easy or, or very difficult. And I usually can just walk in the room and in five seconds look at the family. So do you see kind of this supportive look? Do you, often you go in and the parents are arguing because one of them was taking care of the child and they got hurt under their care. So you need to figure out who's taking care of the child and who can actually help you, um, you know, be your partner with this work. Then you need to do a facility or community checkpoint. You know, where are you working? What's the expertise of your staff? What else is going on? Uh, I walked in one day to start a shift, and we had three procedural sedations that need to be done. I think two were fractures. One was a cute little girl, and the family got a new set of kitchen knives, and she was trying to, you know, be a martial arts artist and whacked her face. And, and I walked in, I was like, and I had new residents, like, this is not going to work. You know, we cannot sedate all these kids because you have to have one-on-one -on -one nursing. So I grabbed my new intern and went in and talked to the family. I said, can I teach him how to take care of your child today, how to do some child life 101? Sure. So we went through these steps. We brought in one of our techs who did some distraction, other techniques, and, you know, they were in and out in no time. So you have to assess what else is going on. And then there's the patient assessment checkpoint. What are the specific things about this patient you need to know in their history and their physical exam? And then there's a management checkpoint. Sorry, that's kind of cut off there. Um, and especially in the ED, we like protocol. We like a cookbook. You know, we want one thing we can do for everyone. And, of course, there's really not a magic recipe. You have to individualize it. You kind of have to determine what your ingredients are. So I always teach it's, it's similar to, yeah, developing your recipe. And then you have non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic ingredients. And usually it's best to do, use some components of both. But often you only need the non-pharmacologic. And then there's monitoring and discharge. So you have to reassess, you know, where you are with things. Did it work? Does the patient need anything else? So there's all types of non-pharmacologic, you know, pain therapy, and these are just some of them that are listed. Um, but certainly some of those would not be appropriate in an ED or EMS setting. You know, we can't have aromatherapy. There might be someone in the next room over who's allergic to certain um, items and chemicals. You know, we're not going to be doing probably hypnosis in the ED, but you'd be amazed. Things are changing, and we're trying things we never thought we would be doing in the ED. We've got one of our colleagues here today, and we were talking last night, and they're thinking about looking at acupuncture in the ED. So, you know, there's all types of, of things we're looking at now. So when you look at um, categorizing it, there's cognitive, behavioral, and physical sensory. So I'm going to briefly go through the physical sensory interventions and then I'm going to turn it over to um, Danielle, who's going to be talking about the cognitive behavioral. So one thing to um, be sure um, that you understand is, or that those you're working with understand, because we're also coaches and teachers for our patients, for our 
you know, their caregivers, and for our, the other staff members that we work with who may not know as much about this as we do, is that children really don't have sufficient cognitive development to understand strangers trying to reassure them until they're age five to seven years. And I always say I can go in and know who I'm working with has kids and who doesn't because, you know, you'll see someone trying to tell a, a you know, talk to a two or three-year-old and, and, and get them to buy into what they're, they're doing. And sometimes you can do that. Children have a lot of uh, individuality. So some of the physical interventions are things that we've done for years, but we don't really think about them as an intervention. So we need to really start thinking about them as a treatment. So positioning, cutaneous stimulation, non-nutritive sucking, pressure, hot and cold treatments. Um, so one of the things we use a lot in infants is just a pacifier with sucrose. There's a solution called Sweeties. And I tell you, when it first came out, I kind of poo-pooed it. I thought, uh, there's, you know, there's no way this is not going to work, but there's definitely the science behind it. It's easy to use in the ED and EMS setting. Another is hot and cold therapy. And, you know, we've been doing this for years, but we need to think about it more. Most EDs are very cold and drafty places, so are uh, ambulances, and these are just some of the advantages of, of heat therapy. Um, Keep in mind that there's a large portion of the population that has something called Raynaud's disease or collagen vascular diseases like lupus or scleroderma. I actually have a daughter that has scleroderma. I go to scleroderma support group meetings, and their biggest complaint is how cold it is. And once they become cold, it just sets off a whole um, series of adverse events that are very, very painful. So just something as simple as um, giving a warm blanket, a warm pack, um, we had these packs that we bought that everyone loves. You can freeze them or you can microwave them, and it makes the patient feel like you're doing something. Cold therapy we've been using for years. Ice packs, you know, for musculoskeletal sprains. Um, and I'm amazed at how many people don't do that anymore. You know, I ask around, where are our ice packs? So all emergency departments and EMS have some form of heat or cold therapy that they can use. And then cutaneous stimulations, the dentists have been using this for years. There's some neat little commercial devices, the Buzzy, that you can use um, with, with ice and that vibrate. And then comfort positioning is also very important. And we've got two posters in here, and you know, we have permission to use them. You can download them and use them. You can adapt your own. So it's very important um, to kind of learn some of these positioning techniques and to make sure the parents know. It gives the parents something to do also. Now, if it's a trauma patient, you know, burn patient, we may not be able to do these things. And again, these are just some other examples uh, depending on what procedure you're doing of how you can position the patient. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Danielle. She's going to talk to you about cognitive behavioral techniques, and then we'll tell you a little bit about developing the distraction toolbox. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danielle Eves Hernandez, and I am the Child Life Specialist Consultant on the PAMI grant. So I don't know how many of you are actually familiar with Child Life Specialty, but I think I have the best job ever. And most people think it's a glorified play lady, but it's really so much more. And so today what I really wanted to talk about is whether you have a Child Life Specialist in your program or not, ways that any staff member can help provide developmentally appropriate support to children. So we are going to review the following topics. And with this, 
I really wanted to impress that it works best when you use a combination of these things. So it's not just turning on music. It's not just education. It's all of these things working together and collaborative efforts with your team. Distraction. This is a win-win for everyone. It works best for patients, for caregivers, for siblings, and for the staff. And what's great about it is you can do it so simply and it makes such a profound difference. This works with all age groups, whether you're working with small children, teenagers, or even adults, whatever your setting may be, whether you're in the emergency department or in a clinical setting or even in a primary care community-based program. Conversation and distraction has been proven to reduce pain by up to 25%. And what's really great about this is you can engage them. If you see a child wearing a sports team shirt, you can engage them in conversation about, oh, this football team, I watched the game, or I saw that they lost, or, oh, you're wearing a SpongeBob shirt? That's my child's favorite character, too. And you can start singing the SpongeBob song. There's all sorts of really great ways. We can take simple cues and tips from the families. If a child has a stuffed animal, you can engage them in talking to the stuffed animal or putting a Band-Aid on the stuffed animal, too, or practicing giving a shot to the stuffed animal first. And then that way the child has a sense of mastery and education about what you're about to do. You don't have to be a child life specialist to do that. Um, but we are pretty good at what we do. So there's two types of distraction that I wanted to review with you today. And really here, passive distraction works best, in my opinion, with children with developmental delay. So children with autism or Down syndrome. Also with younger toddlers, this works really well where you show them a toy and you tell them a story or you try and engage their interaction, but they might not be able to really do a whole lot of interaction back. So children with, um, you know, cerebral palsy, I find this works really well where you're able to show them, you know, some sort of movie, like even on your phone, you can pull up YouTube. Okay, they love Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Let's pull that up on a phone while I'm about to administer a shot or do stitches or some other painful procedure that is anxiety provoking. Then active distraction works really well with school-age children and your teenagers. So cell phones are your best friend and that's something everybody has on them. So whether um, you ask the family member to perhaps turn on a favorite show on their phone or play a game. If a child loves Angry Birds and they have it on their phone, please encourage the parents to bust it out and engage the child in that. It's free and easy and it, it really does wonders. Blowing bubbles is something that I think is really overlooked um, but works really well with younger school-aged children. They're very inexpensive and really help practice the deep breathing for children who are very anxious. So people are like, oh my gosh, bubbles are so messy. But really it works well with children and encouraging them to take an active role in coping. So again, those can be used conjunctively or individually, and that works really well. 
So two child life specialists came up with this concept of distraction versus planned alternative focus. So distraction is what we just reviewed that's diverting attention to reduce anxiety due to the medical environment, whereas planned alternative focus is really using the patient's volition to successfully complete their procedure and giving them a sense of control and mastery really helps them in developing coping skills to use lifelong. So this is how you help children not be that 70-year-old man who won't come to the doctor because he had a terrible experience and was pinned to a bed when he had to get shots or stitches as a child. We know these bad experiences last. So we really want to encourage that plan alternative focus. I find this works really well with middle school children. So some of your children that are developmentally able to really participate in this, teenagers, but even children i found some wise souls who were four, five, six years old and giving them choices and having them be part of the procedure and the medical experience instead of giving them no options. So let's review how we do that. So here I really want um, to give an example. I recently, I work in pediatric hospice actually in palliative care in the community. So I help children on an ongoing basis and I'm a consultant for PAMI as the child life specialist on that grant. But I had a little girl who was four years old when I started working with her seven years ago. And she had to go to the doctor and get shots every week due to her medical condition. And her primary care office was great, but trying to get this little girl through the, door the doorway was like trying to give a cat a bath. She would literally like hang on to the door and not cross that threshold. Her anxiety immediately jumped. And it wasn't because of the actual pain, it was because of the anxiety. So I started going with her to these appointments. I have this awesome medical play doll called a Medkin. We practice where she, we play doctor. Even just having um, something, you know, following your protocols and procedures for infection control. But I find using... Um, Objects like stuffed animals or these medical play dolls really help promote mastery. So I went into this doctor's office and I found that they were basically, you know, pinning this child who was kicking and screaming and headbutting and biting to the bed. And as a four-year-old, that was very frightening for her. So I said, let's use the comfort positioning. So those posters that you saw a few minutes ago are wonderful that Wolfson's Children's Hospital and St. Joseph's Children's have given us permission to use. I really encourage you to implement that. So I came in and I said, let's put this little girl on mom's lap. Then also she wasn't getting any, um, any pain management. So I advocated for Emla and she started getting Emla before the procedure that helped reduce it. So really giving them that option where she would open the alcohol wipes and keep going um, as a, an active member in the procedure worked so much better and the pediatric primary care staff wanted to hire me as a result. Um, so that's something you can easily implement in your primary practice. Re this is a wonderful, um, inexpensive, cost-effective way. We have no secondary gain from wiki sticks, but these things are amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen them in doctor's offices, but Dr. Hendry had a really great experience with this little girl that we've had permission to use her photo um, while she was attending the other, to other patients and waiting in the waiting you know, area in the triage. 
This really helped calm her nerves and give her a sense of mastery and distraction. Again, bubbles are great and very cost-effective. Guided imagery is something that a lot of people really, are, I find, are uncomfortable with, but it works well in older teenagers, and that's something that um, it takes practice. Even just encouraging a patient who's very anxious to close their eyes um, might even help them because then they're not overstimulated with all the things that are going on around them. I have a young man that I work with who's blind, and so I use guided imagery with him while he was getting um, a catheter, you know, a straight cath done that he was terrified of. He loves SpongeBob, so I walked him through and said, we're going under the pineapple under the sea. There's Gary, there's SpongeBob, there's Patrick, and it worked really well in helping to distract him. So there's some great research out there. Um, and then, too, there's this concept. Um, here are really great examples of what you can do to work with children in guided imagery. I find this works really well. I use it a lot with my sickle cell population and also with children with chronic pain syndrome. So please take a look at those. Relaxation techniques. This is something so simple, but we really, even as healthcare workers, need to remember to do these and encourage parents and siblings who are part of this stressful experience. Um, PMR, progressive muscle relaxation, is again really helpful for staff and just taking that deep breath, calming down. The ED can be a very stressful place, so it's just being mindful of our voices and our attitude and being a calm supportive presence versus the chaos that often goes on around them. Again, encouraging that deep breathing, um, this is really important when a child is being transported in EMS or even when they arrive to the hospital and there's all these people invading. Um, and also, I find this works well with the white coat anxiety. A lot of children really get anxious when they see a doctor come in in a white coat. Um, and so this really helps just encouraging them to take a deep breath. Music ther therapy is wonderful and I really encourage you to look into contracting. This is a great opportunity for donors and grant writing. That's how we've been able to get a lot of our positions, as well as my child life program. I've grown in hospice. Um, people really want to help sick children, and child life and music therapy are very attractive for donors. You can contract music therapists, so even if you hire them for a few hours and then prove the effectiveness, you're able to often get staff community hospital buy-in. Um, this is a great research study that showed how effective even a simple playlist can be. So again, using your cell phone, um, turning on Pandora or Spotify, you find a child really loves Justin Bieber, turning on your PlayStation to Justin Bieber makes all the difference. And then they love when you start singing, and if you're a terrible singer like I am, that really helps to break the ice and calm them down. So Dr. Lenora Kuttner wrote this wonderful book, and she really focuses on how healthcare workers can help children. And the value of listening is really underrated because we are so busy, there's chaos going on, but taking two minutes to collaborate with the parent prior to um, going in and you know starting procedures and frightening experiences can really make a big difference. Listening to the child, giving them choices, asking them what they want, and then taking a breath to pace it in 
accordance with what the child is, is working with. So I find if you take just a couple minutes ahead of time, it's going to save you time in the long run of your procedure. Um, and it'll be a, a much more pleasant experience for everyone involved. Again, uh, this list continues. Finding key phrases that really work well for your patients. So if you commonly work on a procedure, um, if you're doing stitches quite a bit, you know, giving them examples of this is going, we're going to use the numbing um, medication. So when I give you the shot, it's going to sting for just a minute, but then you're going to go numb, and then that way we can do your stitches. So just finding key phrases that work well for you and making that a part of your routine really works well. I also encourage children when they have to have a painful procedure done to practice standing still like a statue and taking deep breaths. So um, I kind of make it into a little game and that seems to work well. Again, we need to be mindful of the language that we're using. That can make all the difference. I find that orienting information is probably the most important part of this list and making sure that you give them the step-by-step -step as to what's going on works really well. Um, again, like the little girl I was telling you about, that made all the difference in training the staff and training the parent and training the child on how we can all work together to successfully master these experiences. Training and coaching, we really uh, want to advocate for making the parents an active member of this procedure. So it's not just the medical staff that's taking a role. If you feel like this parent is someone that can really work well and be a supportive, calm presence, giving them a job to do really helps to reduce their anxiety as well. And even siblings, having them grab the alcohol prep wipes or can you please hand me that Band-Aid really makes a difference because sometimes you have an ER room or a primary care office full of other children. So another wonderful child life specialist came up with this concept of one voice and I know a lot of children's hospitals have implemented this. If you're not familiar with it, please check it out. But here we really want to reinforce the need for parental involvement, offering the patient uh, the most comfortable non-threatening position, so that's where those comfort positioning holds come in, and then reducing the number of staff in a room. Sometimes that's just overwhelming. If you have you know, several residents in the room, and then you have this tech, and then you have somebody getting the insurance, and then you have doctors and a nurse. That's very stressful for a child. So just being mindful. Some children don't mind that at all, but that's something we need to remember. But being transported by EMS is a procedure. And so that's a very stressful experience, and we really want to advocate and train our EMS staff as well. So that's where our PAMI project has come in. And on our Pay Me Project website, you can find these courses you can go online and take. And it works, you know, the whole focus is pediatric non-pharmacological management and really putting it all together for the children in different developmental levels. Again, um, just being mindful that no child is too young to receive developmentally appropriate support. So instead of putting a child, my biggest pet peeve is putting a child on the exam bed and then pinning them to it when you give them a shot. Let's put them in mom's arms. If it's a baby, let's swaddle, let's comfort positioning. That makes such a difference and children remember their pain experiences in these. So we really want to set them up for success for life. 
Um, adolescence, obviously providing supports to adolescents looks a lot different than children, than infants or even school age. I find with this, providing choices and making the teenager part of that um, active role in their procedure works really well. Having them turn on some of their favorite music or playing a game or the iPad if your organization you know, has iPads in the ED, you can get grants or donations for those, and that works really well. So at this point in time, we're really going to get into the fun stuff, and I'm going to introduce Dr. Kalinich to talk about how we are launching this distraction toolbox. <laughs> so what do you put in your distraction toolbox, and how do you fund it? It's good to look at your funding and how you put your toolbox together sort of in two different categories. The first category are the toys or the items that you're going to have and that you're going to keep. They're a little more expensive. They're probably a little more involved. So you want to keep those items and be able to repeat them with the different patients that you have, such as the lighted toy. I think somebody just did a van for me. <laughs> And the other category or items you want to think about are the ones that are going to be disposable and you're going to throw away or go home with the families. So when you look into those kinds of things, you want to think about just you know, the ability to uh, disinfect your ones you're going to keep. And you also don't want to have a bunch of small, uh, small parts or chokeable items. And in, in the end, even if you have an adult or an adolescent, it's just better not to have those around because if they take them home, to their families and they have somebody at home that could choke on them. Or in our ED, the family, everybody comes to the ED. <laughs> it's not just one person, so the whole family comes. We have five children in the room. And you want to be mindful, even though you might be treating that one patient, you have other kids in there too. So you don't want to have these small items there as well. Also consider your space, because we do a lot in the pre-hospital setting. This is our toolbox that we developed really for the MS setting. So it's smaller, it's durable. Uh, it can go into a designated space. In the ED, your toolbox may be more figurative. It may not be literal. So you may have a room, you may have a closet, you may have a cart, something that you can actually bring to the ED or it stays in there but where everybody knows and they all know how to use it. But there are rolling uh, toolboxes. We have those as well, those nice big heavy duty ones that you can also pack. You have more options because you have more space in the ED. So you can do more uh, with, with your actual items. Again, looking at safety control and also with your infection control, so you want to make sure that you're following policy and doing your uh, infections, cleaning, and looking at the choking hazards. Some other concerns you want to have, if you have really extremely anxious parents, what can you do with them? Can you fill out this piece of paper for me? Can you help me do this? Can you find this for your child? Some things that you can also do for distractions. Uh, if you have patients with suicidal tendencies, I don't think we actually really want to give them one of the the lighted toys, you don't want them to hit themselves or somebody else. Um, and then if you have no children, if you have children there with no caregiver present, then you also want to think about how you can use distraction until the family can get there. It's really important to identify a champion in your ED. Who, who can really move this and make sure that the items are ordered and things are in stock and people are educated? If you have an ED tech who's in school, and they need a special project. If you have a nurse who's working on her master's degree, or even her DMP, there's so much literature out there now that they can do a master's thesis or a dissertation just on this topic, and then also put this into their practice. 
uh, if they're a magnet program, if it's a nursing magnet program, then they can also utilize these things as part of their magnet program. So find that champion, but don't forget about your community stakeholders. They're extremely important and they're the ones who are gonna help fund you. As Dr. Hendry said, that people love to help injured children. Do they wanna see children in pain? You can find community partners. Many restaurants already use these wiki sticks. So I know uh, Mellow Mushroom, I know some of them, these may be local restaurants, but Mellow Mushroom utilizes wiki sticks. Uh, Ted, Ted Montana, Montana Grill yeah. utilizes these. They're buying them anyway. Hey, can you order a couple hundred more for us in our PZD? Then you almost always will get somebody who will give them to you. Lots of opportunities for training. There's national day, month, and week for everything. Find one that fits and utilize that as an educational opportunity for your staff. Uh, again, utilizing your community partners. Also, negotiate with vendors. So these toolbox, if you order them off of Amazon, they're $17 a piece. Kind of expensive if you have a lot of EMS trucks like we do. So we contacted the um, manufacturer of the toolbox. We got them down to $4.80. So we ordered 300 of them, and during EMS week, we're going to stock them and give them as our, their starter kit for doing a distraction toolbox. So negotiate, and the other thing that we are currently negotiating with, I don't have an example because it's coming this week, but we have lighted keychains or LEDs lights. My grandchild, who's 16 months, was just recently in the ED, <laughs> um, loved the little dolphin. It had a light and it squeaked. Total wonderful distraction for her in the ED setting. They're $4 a piece off of Amazon, some as high as 8 We got the company to come down to $1.73 a piece. So many people are willing to work with you as long as you just put it out there. You can also create a wish list off of Amazon. Amazon is amazing. You could spend hours and hours trying to find something on it, but pick a few things, order them, check them out, make sure they're going to work. And then what you can do is Christmas is coming. You have the angel trees where people order toys for families who, who may not have as many presents. Create an ED family, uh, an ED wish list tree. And you can do, all, especially all of these one items here, you can put them there to, to purchase them for your ED. Lots of different kinds of ideas you can do. Go to the dollar store. Dr. Hendry, I think, walks in there and they go, oh, Dr. Hendry. <laughs> um, Target has lots of good clearance items for a dollar. Art supply stores, lots of opportunities. So let's think about a couple case scenarios. So rescue arrives at the home of an 85-year-old female who fell down the stairs. Medics perform a quick assessment and determine that her left ankle is swollen and tender. She appears anxious and is in pain. Reports her pain as a 9 out of 10. They immobilize her ankle, establish an IV. During the transport, patient begins to cry and states, now my children will make me sell my house and go to a nursing home. What can you do to help with this patient? Go ahead and shout it out. Learn lots of things today. What else can we do for her? So there are certainly some non-pharmacological things we can do in terms of distraction. Because we often don't think enough anymore about doing ice packs, you can do ice while you're in the ambulance, elevate the extremity. But one of the most important things you can do is to help develop that relationship with that patient. The woman is very anxious. I tell my children, you put me in a nursing home, the dog gets the money. Okay? So there are lots of things you can do to help distract and develop that relationship with, with the family. So thinking about what Danielle said about music therapy, if you have Pandora on your phone, what kind of music would you ask her? Do you like Frank Sinatra? What was your favorite um, hobby growing up? Uh, did you go to college? What did you do when... Uh, when um, you're raising your family. 
Uh, did you recently go on vacation? Did your family live here? How many grandchildren do you have? Just having those kinds of conversations can start to decrease her anxiety level. And then also orienting her to the fact that you're bringing her to the ED. We're going to UF Health Jacksonville. When we get there, the healthcare team will greet you. We'll also have registration. Oh, and if we haven't reached your family, chaplains are there, and they'll be happy to call your family for you. I mean, can you imagine how the anxiety level and her pain level just starts to going down already? And then you're going to get a really nice letter at the end because they were really happy. <laughs> That's always good PR. So our pediatric case scenario, you're called their residence of a three-year-old female who pulled a uh, pot of boiling water off the stove. She has secondary burns on her arms and chest and face. She's screaming and running away from you. How are you going to assess this child's pain? It's a three-year-old. So you want to think about using the FLAC. FLAC is a great um, pain scale that helps you assess that. Um, child who can't really tell you, obviously you know she's going to be in a good bit in pain, but you can do a good assessment using the pain scale that's appropriate for her age. Dr. Henry went through the, check, um, the stepwise approach, so looking first at your situation. I won't go through all these, I'll just throw a couple of them out there. But your situation checkpoint, what's going on in the ED? Are there four other um, EMS trucks right behind this patient? Is the child um, developing appropriately? What's the fi family dynamics? Are they there? Uh, what do you have the staff you need if you're going to uh, perform certain procedures on this patient? And the more you utilize the stepwise approach, the faster you'll get at it. Some of the things you can do to help the, with the child is using the lighted toy. Uh, you can use a comfort position, but with burns, you're going to have to be careful. You know, you want to do real close to the um, patient, to the family. But just having the ability to hold your child, that child to be with the, the parent, is very uh, soothing. Using appropriate language, you are brave, not instead of I'm sorry. If you can't get the IV in right away, maybe you'll use some interneasal fentanyl to cover the burn, but now you've got an opportunity to calm her down, and then um, maybe they can get that, um, now get the IV access. So you want to think about lots of opportunities that you can utilize distraction and, with, and, and other non-pharmacological methods with different populations, adult patients with autism or who are developmentally delayed, chronically ill patients who have undergone lots of painful procedures and they get a little upset about even hearing about these things. But I think if you show them that it works while you're there, you have the opportunity to change their mind. Patients who are very anxious and have mental disorders would really help. And then uh, those who are on high opioids. Think about other resources. There's lots of literature out there. I'm not going to go through these. These are just some things you can look for in the future to read. These are some great videos that you can utilize as teaching moments in your ED. Uh, most of us have nursing huddles. Uh, they meet every morning and every afternoon before shifts. You can uh, also do tweets, pearls, anything to send out there about just short information that reminds people to use distraction. And you can use these in a more formal educational setting. Lots of books and tips out there available. Please come back to our PAMI website. Often we're going to be rolling this out more um, in the next few months and hopefully be updating it in the next couple of years. It's really one of our favorite topics. Let us know as you, if you utilize any of this, what's worked for you. If you got a great deal on anything, please let us know. <laughs> if you want us, we're going to be posting on our website the companies that we've utilized. And, so, and we, I can't really put the deals on there, but you'll see that they're friendly to the topic and interested. Uh, so we'll have those resources as well. Do you have any questions or comments? I only had a, a last few minutes, so I kind of ran through those fast. <laughs> questions? So 
We're going to be rolling this out for EMS week and working with National Association of EMTs. And then again, we'll probably do, you, know, you could target it towards your hospital or towards pre-hospital, depending on, um, you know, what your setting is. So I'm not sure what most of your backgrounds are, but we would love your, you know, your feedback if you have any ideas or you want to do similar program in your area. Um, this particular toolbox cost a little more because we wanted something with the option to lock because, you know, hospitals with joint commission, even EMS, you have to be very careful. It's amazing what, you know, kids can get into and, and do. We have our, our cards here if you want to scan the back. Our, you know, all of our information is here in your presentation. Um, we just got back some cute little logos we have, which unfortunately we didn't get in time to present to you with what the ED distraction toolbox would look like. And we have a few flyers that we, you know, put together if you're interested or if you want to look at any of the things we have up here. But um, probably what we'll do in our toolbox is have like five key items. You know, we have all kinds of stuff up here. I've got my Shrek pen that talks and, well, he's not talking today, but anyway, <laughs> Shrek talks and, you know, little Rubik's cubes and things like that. And but, they have some really great distraction cards for kids that can look to see what's wrong with this picture. And some of them are actually very easy to pick out. And in that little box over there, yeah. um, even I find myself looking, like, what's wrong with that picture? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but some of it's easy to find, so it distracts them pretty quickly and not too difficult. But you'd be amazed at the wonderful options that are out there. So any questions or comments? Okay, thank you so much. We appreciate you being here at 7 o'clock, and thanks to my team.